Five years ago, a book came out that changed the face of rewilding in England. Now, I have a pretty poor attention span at the best of times, but I remember churning through the pages front to back within days. The book was Wilding by Isabella Tree, a story about the return of nature to a British farm. And what a story it is. The land beneath my feet used to be arable farmland. Large herds of dairy cows wandered the neighbouring fields, and a few thousand sheep grazed nearby. Nothing out of the ordinary for lowland Britain. It might have been green, and it might have been pleasant, but wild? Not so much. Its previous identity is hard for me to picture, because it's now an evolving land of scrub and wood pasture. It's tangled, it's messy, and it's blooming marvellous. This land is now brimming with butterflies and humming with crickets. Nightingales sing late in the evening, and turtle doves purr from the oaks above. This is a story of success, where nature's cup is refilling. So how long did this transformation take, from farm to feral? 50 years? 100 perhaps? Try 15 to 20. Nature isn't clawing its way back here. It's sprinting. I'm James Shooter, host of the Rewild podcast, and this is Nep Wildland. I've travelled down to Horsham in the south of England to meet Charlie Burrell, co-owner of NEP with his wife Isabella Tree, and Penny Green, their resident ecologist. It's an exciting preamble coffee, because after staking out their wetlands until midnight last night, Penny brings with her some positive news. Good morning. How are you? Nice to meet you. You might want to elaborate. All I heard was Izzy saying, have you heard the news this morning? And, uh, oh, I, sent, I tried phoning you and then I sent the phone to it's um, it's not the best photo, I'm afraid. But it's a photo oh, nonetheless. It? I think it might be. We're not telling anyone to talk about natural England first. <laughs> it's quite grown up. I know. I mean, you can't tease me with this. <laughs> Somebody just asked me about that yesterday it's a, and I was like... It's a beaver kitchen. Oh, amazing. <laughs> We've been waiting for, for them to appear. Oh, brilliant. Hoping Thank that you. they have bread. Oh, that's awesome. I leave Penny to her morning tasks and start following Charlie's hurried footsteps out into the field. Isabella's already out with a film crew somewhere in the scrub and Charlie's got to show around a flock of journalists in a couple of hours. So we have to get moving. It seems like a chaotic schedule to me but I get the sense this is just part of the everyday now for this passionate team. As we walk into the greenery, Charlie's pace relaxes. Mounds of bramble breach above the ground, wild rose are still clinging on to some of their pink petals, and stands of blackthorn are decorated with sloes. The yellow flowers of common fleabane fill the gaps between them. Five minutes ago, we were in a rush, but Charlie now can't help but show me things on the way through. You can tell he lives and breathes this land. Um, so that was the first stork nest to be built on top of a tree. Oh, right, OK. And it was such a surprise, because we'd been going around learning about these animals and what they did. And 
one of the questions I was always asking, whether you were in Switzerland or in Holland or in Sweden, was where do they nest naturally? Yeah. And um, and you never got you never got the answer. <laughs> oh well, they do nest in trees, but mostly they nest on uh, tops of poles and in in villages and so on, and um, or on tops of cathedrals or whatever it is. Um, you, 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 so I kept on pressing, saying, "Well, where do they nest?" In, in, you know, before man came along and built its cathedrals and built, you know, where were they nesting? And and no one actually could point to it. Really well. So here we've got twenty-four nests, say, and they're all in oak trees. Wow. And they're all in the tops of oak trees. We've now got quite close to here um, white-tailed eagles breeding. And Is that Roy Dennis's down on yes. the Isle of White? Well, it was, a, it was the Isle of White reintroduction. Yes. But they're breeding quite close to here. Wow. And um, the white-tailed eagles come through. I have never seen them come over the stork pen, but several of the guides here have seen them. <laughs> and it just goes completely mad. I mean, yeah. the storks go completely mad. So I'm just wondering if, if those stork nests right on top of oak trees actually become a little bit... I'm feeling a little bit yeah. sort of exposed to um, a white-tailed eagle because um, you can imagine a white-tailed eagle just swooping down and picking off a stalk quite easily. Doesn't this feel like such a mad conversation to be having, though, for southern England? It is like, mad, isn't it? White-tailed yeah. eagle taking us... And, and that's the thrill of yeah. thrill of all this, is, is that you have people like Roy and you have people like the Cotswold mm. Wildlife Park and, uh, and welling landowners like us to do these sorts of things. Yeah, yeah. Um, Brilliant combination of yeah, people. Yeah, amazing. And, and Roy, Roy's, Roy's team uh, is also involved in the White Stalk Project. Tim McCrill oh, yeah, um, yeah. is, is part of this whole uh, project as well. So yeah. Tim's doing... He's going to be watching his white-tailed eagles eat his stalks, <laughs> basically. <laughs> Uh, and he's thrilled about that. <laughs> he's thrilled. That sounds like Tim. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Should we walk on? Yeah. Charlie's grown up in farms. He was born in Zimbabwe, where his parents farmed the land, before moving to Australia, and finally on to England, where he inherited Nepa State in 1987. So I've had that sort of background of, of being in Africa and Australia, big countries, big landscapes, and always involved in the land. And I came back to the UK, went to school here, and then uh, age 21, I took over running the Nepcastle estate for my grandparents. Look, all the storks are up flying. Wow, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then I, um, I then, um, then took over running the farm a couple of years later when my grandmother died, and so was running the whole show by the age of 23, I guess. NEP is 1,400 hectares in size, only around a tenth of the size of some of the private estates close to where I live in Scotland. Yet here in the middle of the now wild land, you feel away from it all. In fact, the only reminder we're an hour outside of the capital is the planes flying low overhead on the way into London's Gatwick Airport. Charlie had inherited the reins after years of intensification, and the farm was already losing money. We had a very conventional farming system, as I was saying. Um, you had your dairy, you had, your, you had 600 dairy cows producing a little bit over 3 million litres of milk. We were farming it with, uh, with a mixed, uh, this mixed farming system with arable and uh, beef uh, uh, in buildings being fed on barley 
Uh, we tried that out and we tried um, a whole lot of different systems in terms of uh, beef production. And then we also had um, three or 4,000 um, sheep as well uh, in rotation with all the arable. So it was a mixed conventional farming system. Every square inch of Nepp's land was being utilised to improve productivity in the search of some kind of profit. The hedges were tight and the ponds filled in. There was a constant battle to drain water off the land, to try and make the heavy clay soils here anything better than unworkable. Nature uncontrolled was not an option. By the end of the 90s, the farming business was really struggling as global prices were squeezing Nepp out of the market. The only thing keeping it alive were subsidies from the EU. At the turn of the century, everyone was talking about these being disbanded, and without NEP changing tact, it would have been a final and very big nail in the coffin. The big decision was that I didn't believe that we could make this profitable, so um, we decided uh, that we would come out of farming altogether. We didn't quite have a clear plan of what that meant, we knew that, um, that something might come along and where my interest lay was in nature. And at the same sort of time as that, in the end of the 90s, I was meeting through Ted Green um, and Jill Butler, a whole lot of Europeans, and they were really fascinating people. And Franz Fierro was one of them, and Franz um, had just written and had his book translated in 2000, uh, Gray's Oncology and Forest History. And that was, I thought, I thought completely fascinating and also what I understood ecology to function like. Um, having come from Australian Africa's ecology, grazing ecology seemed to be, you know, I couldn't understand why you wouldn't think like France. In a nutshell, Franz hypothesised that closed canopy woodland would not be the final point of succession for much of lowland Europe, as large herbivores would have maintained a more open landscape. He argues that light-demanding trees would not have been so well represented in the fossil record if closed canopy conditions were the main ecosystem. Aurochs and tarpan, the wild cattle and horses of Europe, boar, bison, elk and deer, they all would have added a huge amount of positive disturbance to a dynamic and ever-changing landscape. They browse, they scratch, they trample, they rootle, they wallow, they dung. Take them out of the equation, and the trees get a clean run towards expansive forests, an ecosystem less species-rich than mosaics of semi-open wood pasture and scrub. So how can one small corner of the English countryside mimic this theory? Here at NEP, Charlie and his newly formed advisory board felt that the native vegetation needed a head start before animals were brought into the mix. So we didn't just stop farming bang. We came out of the worst arable fields first and then slowly came out over a six-year period. And during that six-year period, we're just allowing the stubble, the after harvest, the stubble, to be colonised by whatever was going to come in. What we were seeing was all these uh, little, what I was seeing, was a whole lot of uh, successional plants. Obviously, you first of all start with just common ragwort and creeping thistle and, and spear thistle and all the things that farmers hate, yeah. and it was all very scary. And then you, uh, and then that goes through that transition and you can see all the little plants, uh, the, the woody shrubby plants coming up. And we then let that happen for nine years. So some of the fields were out of arable production for nine years before we put a ring fence around and we actually put animals in here. So that was really important to have that rest period before the animals came because that allowed those plants to start to build up the wherewithal to fight the browse that was coming 
Do you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, so these plants needed to build up starches, needed to build up the sugars to then produce the tannins, to produce the, the hardened thorns. The energy needed to protect themselves needed to come from a length of time. And I think, you know, where we've got to here, and this is now 20, 20 years later, this is actually 20 years ago, this is 2004, this field we're standing in now, but, you know, so you're talking um, 10, 15 years, you can have one of the, you know, best uh, sites for breeding birds in Britain. It's incredible. Yeah, that's incredible. It really, there's nothing short So of 10 it. years, 15 years, bang, you've, you've got something absolutely extraordinary. Yeah, that is brilliant. With the aurochs and tarpan extinct, and boar difficult to reintroduce, the team at NEP turned their attention to native, domesticated breeds. These would be hardy enough to live out their lives free of intervention, and work as proxies to their wild counterparts. English Longhorns, an impressive-looking cattle breed with, you guessed it, longhorns, take the place of the aurochs. Exmoor Ponies, which seem like pretty wild animals from the off, take the place of tarpan, and Tamworth pigs take on the snuffling duties of wild boar, not extinct, but prohibited from being released. Alongside red, roe and fallow deer, they roam freely across the estate. They are the foot soldiers in the battle between tooth and thorn. In the UK, you've got real restrictions on what you can choose. You can't choose. I was talking to someone in Denmark who's doing the same thing, having read Izzy's book. Um, he decided that he was going to do a rewilding project on their pretty stony, crappy ground, and they'd been trying to farm it. Uh, anyway, what his choices were for his introductions was wild boar, elk, um, bison, um, and heck, cattle. <laughs> yeah, okay. So he was able to think completely differently, and none of those things we could have here. We can't have the boars part of the Dangerous Wild Animals Act. We can't have the heck cattle part of the Dangerous Wild Animals Act. We can't have the elk part of the Dangerous Wild Animals Act. Can't have the bison part of the Dangerous Wild Animals Act. So we've got very few choices here. So you, you have to use proxies of these grazing animals. I'll try to stay clear of going too far down the rabbit hole of Brexit. But since we parted ways with the European Union, the future subsidy system for farmers has been up in the air. The UK government had an opportunity to reimagine support for farmers and they've been making some good noises about public money for public good. Subsidies would no longer be focused solely on production or the amount of land you own, but the environmental land management schemes, ELMS for short, were being set up to finance environmental restoration, either alongside food production or in place of it. This would add value to some of the most unproductive farmland in England and Wales, and would pay people to boost nature. The trouble is... Every farmer I've spoken to has said that details have been so scant and initial ambitions so watered down that nobody really knows where they stand. Do land managers gamble and start aiming their business plans towards an unfinished subsidy plan for environmental gain, or double down on increasing food production, knowing that one way or another, government support can't be relied upon? Whichever way you look at it, the government budget doesn't touch the sides. Payouts for farming and the environment in England are set at £2.4 billion a year. It might sound a lot, but Charlie's not impressed. I, I was talking to someone in the MOD and, and that was just a bad contract going wrong. I mean, it's tiny. The That's... amount of money that we are spending on saving this country for nature and farming is just a drop in the ocean. I mean, it's just nothing. I mean, it's almost... They should double, triple that. The lack of government backing for the large-scale restoration of nature in the UK 
is jarring against our supposed leadership on the fight against climate change. Leaders in words, perhaps, but not in action. If you'd like to hear about a nation that's been truly ambitious on this platform, look to Costa Rica for some inspiration. In the late 1990s, they started paying landowners to preserve and restore the environment, using taxes from fossil fuels. Propped up by a healthy nature-based tourism model, they've managed to make social progress whilst restoring their rich natural assets. Successful rewilding by a national government. Take note, politicians of the world. Now, NEP isn't Costa Rica, but they have, without doubt, been pioneers for environmental progress in England. They were brave enough to take a leap of faith and results across the board have been phenomenal for nature. They've shown what's possible on our own doorstep. And the brilliant thing is, they've inspired other landowners to copy the model. I'm so pleased that I'm part of a movement. Um, and whatever little we have been able to add to that whole collective knowledge, where you know, one of the things that has always been really important for us is to is to show what it looks like here. So we have a lot of people coming, um, and we talked a little bit about politicians earlier on, but we get everyone from the politicians to the NGOs to just people fascinated, wanting to wanting to feel what it feels like to have a, a rewilding project because they may want to buy some land and do it. Every year there's something extraordinary. I mean this year it's the you know it's the beaver kit appearing. Wow. I mean that's today. It's the first time you've seen a beaver kit. Um, last year it was the uh, a breeding colony of a butterfly that hadn't been seen in the UK for 50 years. Uh, the large tortoiseshell. I walk and think this landscape the whole time, and my thrill is the it's the it's the Gaia, it's the whole thing, it's the it's the it's the it's my little planet, um, and so the, just seeing that little planet coming alive again is what I'm thrilled by. That's what that gets me out of bed every morning. Charlie leaves me near the southern end of the estate, where I'm to wait for Penny and Jamie Craig curator of Cotswold Wildlife Park. He and his team are dropping off a van full of juvenile white storks to top up a reintroduction project that's been happening for the last few years. Today, they're getting relocated to a pre-release enclosure, where they'll stay for a couple of weeks to acclimatise before being fully released into the wild. I'm not entirely alone, as a few pairs of already established adults are bill clattering from giant nests in the oak trees around me. The friendly welcome display between mated birds sounds like a two-stroke engine starting up. And alongside the 15 or 20 birds swirling in a thermal above my head, it's an incredible sight to behold. Hiya. Hiya. Okay. Yeah, yeah, come on in. Oh, We're going to shut the gate. Thank you. So what's the process? You literally just bundle the boxes out? Yeah, I think we'll bring them to here so we can undo them and they'll go down into this bit. And so that is it. It's just a mass unloading and then just keep an eye on them. Is it OK to take a few photos? Yeah, as you... fine. Do. Yeah, oh, yeah no problem. Cool. They should be fine. They should walk here and they'll go down that end 
even though we're bringing the rest in, they'll just hang around down that end. Yeah, you might want well, to have you got any cable ties. I've got some cable ties. Might be worth there. just doing a couple I'll grab of some. We always have yeah. cable ties, they're the yeah. most useful thing. <laughs> yeah, That's another good tool of the trade. Cable ties. You can't go wrong Within with. another couple of years, this will be mainly cable yeah. ties. <laughs> <laughs> Quite a lot of red in there, beef, haven't they? Is that all for that lot? The next batch. So yeah, they should just sit quietly at that end if we're up here and just spread their wings a little bit. Yeah, are they easy to breed in captivity? These not, necess not necessarily. You need a dynamic right, you know. So you need and you need a good keepers who follow routine because yeah. the trick is you don't want them to be. Tame. You just need them habituate so they ignore you. You're not part of that. So they, a lot of places do struggle. Right. And if you put them off, because they're a long-lived bird, they can go years just uh, stop breeding. Really affect them down the line. Um, but if you've got good pairs that are producing eggs, it does spur on the next one and the next one and the next one. And then what should happen is those birds too young to produce should may still lay eggs and go through all the motions of nest building and everything because they're copying. Because actually they're really a colony bird. Yeah. Though so most of the pictures you'll see is of one up a telegraph pole. Yeah, yeah. That's just because in their countries of origin, a lot of the breeding sites are so far spread. Mm. We've watched it. If they, if you leave them to it, what they want to do, they will see a dominant pair or the earliest breeder, and they'll all want to breed near to them. Right. So we put platforms up, but actually one built a nest on the ground by the pond, and the others are literally a, we'd call it a stab distance away. They don't want to be so close they keep pecking yeah, each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we also, what is interesting is they'll all pinch each other's nests. So if one is a, we've got one that built a lovely nest, but the others just pull it apart <laughs> because they leave it because they're not experienced. They'll be building a nice nest, then both going to get nest material. And while they're gone, the cunning older birds will just walk over. I love that. Because it's weird, they don't just pick any stick. Yeah. You think it's just throw a bundle of sticks, but they'll really pick the bit they want and they'll fight over a stick because they <laughs> know it's stick. the right one. Yeah. 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 And if you look at the nest, they're pretty impressive. They can look scruffy, but if yeah. you get ours will last all winter through all weather, they'll weather down a bit, but the basic structure is pretty solid. As I'm sat just to the side of the transport boxes, taking a few photos as the stalks come out, I quickly realise I'm within stab distance myself, and decide now's a good time to leave the experienced team to it. I wander off to find a quieter spot with Penny amongst the scrub. So the main part of NEP, as you've probably seen on, on your walk through uh, here, is uh, the scrubland uh, and this amazing dynamic matrix of scrub with blackthorn and hawthorn, bramble, wild rose, and we've got the flea banes in flower at the moment, this lovely little sort of uh, yellow daisy-like flower. Um, and there's lots of open areas, there's open pastures, but then hedges that are growing out, lovely old veteran trees. We've got water lags, these um, little floodplain meadows, uh, running through the site as well, which provide an aquatic element to the site. There's of aquatic plants and water shrews and harvest mice and dragonflies thriving in those areas. So it's that really dynamic. The fact there's loads of edge, I think, is the key thing, um, where we transition from scrub to open areas um, and then back to scrub again and back into hedges and so on. So it's, it's really diverse and providing opportunities for all sorts of wildlife. Uh, but what we now need is connectivity, thinking about how species move between sites. And places like NEP, you know, where we're on marginal land that was no good for farming, these can provide the, the kind of opportunities. I see a stalk. <laughs> a stalk, oh my God, just right above in us. Reflecting your sunglasses. Wow. <laughs> right above us. <laughs> um, and so we're, you know, helping to 
you know, you think about how you can have nature recovery in large areas with a minimum intervention. So if scrub is so good, why don't we see more of it across the English countryside? Well, it's a transitional habitat, and an untidy one at that. It's normally transitioning out of something we want to keep, like a grassland or heathland, or transitioning into something we want to get faster, like a woodland. The messy bit in the middle, we've kind of done without. We like shoehorning habitats into neat little boxes here in the UK. Allowing scrub to take hold goes against the grain of traditional conservation, where you want to keep a habitat in the status quo. It's been cut back, burned, overgrazed and dug up. It never really gets a chance to play out. NEP is giving it that chance, at scale, and the results speak for themselves. I think the bird um, diversity here and the number of nesting birds that we have is quite remarkable, um, just because we have so much scrubland uh, opportunities for nesting birds, uh, but also the food source, you know, insects and seeds and fruit and those kind of things. Um, all the little caterpillars in the spring as well. So, you know, there's loads of resources here for birds. One incredible surprise of the rewilding initiative has been the rapid success of a stunning little butterfly, which has now been immortalised in NEP's logo, the Purple Emperor. They have fancier tastes than your average butterfly, bypassing flowers and gunning straight for foxcat, aphid honeydew and the sap secreted from wounds on oak trees. I mean, when I say fancier, I do mean weirder. If you were to read the literature on this magnificent species, it's described as a woodland animal. But here at Scrub HQ, they've gone from recording none in the recent past to being the UK's largest colony. If NEP had targeted purple emperors, they might have been obliged to create closed canopy forest. But by sitting back and seeing what results came in, they've inadvertently done a much better job. Uh, the purple emperor season has just come to an end, actually, and it's been pretty good to, considering we had a, a, dr um, a drought year last year when everything, all their food plants had wilted. But here we've got um, the lovely old oak trees where the males will be displaying over and sort of clearing their sort of airspace, air so they'll be seeing off other purple emperors, they'll be seeing off birds, you know, wing clapping swallows. I've seen them chasing house martins and woodpeckers really? before. Wow. They're pretty vicious. Um, <laughs> don't so, get on the wrong end no, of a purple emperor. Definitely don't. I think it's, it's the, the fact we've got those big old oak trees um, for the male territories right next to the willow scrub. And the willow is where the female will be laying her eggs. Um, and the larvae will be uh, hatching out of, of those eggs and then feeding on the young growth of the willows. And then overwintering uh, on those willows uh, and then um, feeding up again in the spring and then uh, pupating and coming out sort of June, July time. Um, but I think the, the biggest total we've had of a daily count was a few years ago now, I think it was 2018, was 388 wow. uh, purple emperors seen on, on, in a day, so individuals. Cool. It was just amazing. I mean, it's very distracting as well when you're trying to do other work. <laughs> oh, more poor purple emperors. <laughs> Another species enjoying the return of scrub is a bit of a plain Jane to look at. But when it sings, its beauty is truly revealed. The nightingale. It erupts into song at night time, when all the other birds have finished for the day. A star performer. A solo act. It nests in tangled scrub close to the ground, so isn't particularly interested in tight-cut hedges where the legs are bare. It's rapidly declining in southern England, but Nep is booking that trend too, 
We're not putting any pesticides down anymore. Obviously, previously as an intensively farmed landscape, this would have had lots of pesticides and fertilizers and so on put on it. Uh, so now we've got loads of insects, so they'll be feeding themselves and their insects as they're, they're young on those insects. Uh, so hopefully getting off lots of successful broods on that abundance. Um, and also sort of, you know, when they're coming through on migration here, there'll be lots of uh, opportunity for them to feed up on migration. And hopefully they're seeing this place and thinking, oh, I might come back here next year. Um, so this year was, uh, you know, a bumper year for nightingales. We, I think, had over 50 singing males just in the southern block. Wow. Which, you know, if you go out at night time just to hear the nightingales, all the other birds have gone to bed. It is just, you know, the most amazing thing you ever hear. It gives me goosebumps just thinking about it. And we can't obviously not talk about storks as they're swirling and everything. So they've been kind of reintroduced here. Mm. Why was that important to do? The storks, you know, they're not like a, a beaver per se, where they're an um, ecosystem engineer. They're not, you know, creating loads of habitat for other species. Uh, but what they are doing is getting us thinking, uh, us humans thinking about um, what, you know, having having big nature back in our skies again and how important that is to us and for us to be able to engage with landscape connectivity. So getting us thinking about um, how we can uh, look at nature recovery over large areas and not just in small silos. So they're an amazing ambassador, especially through COVID when people were here on their daily activity, didn't need to know anything about wildlife to be able to look up and go, oh my God, that's amazing and that's inspiring. After seeing these birds circling around in the air and looking down from their oak top penthouse suites, I can certainly confirm that they elicit a sense of excitement. We need to get people fired up about nature. We're competing with people's attention spans for Instagram, Netflix, the pub, the footy, Love Island. Incorporating a few wow factor species that can easily be seen has the potential to hook people in. Once they're through the door, what else might they discover? It's been an amazing partnership project with Roy Dennis Foundation and Cotswold Wildlife Park, you just met. Uh, another estate over in East Sussex and Warsaw Zoo over in uh, Poland. And so it's been quite a long process. It started in 2016 uh, with importing uh, rehabilitated birds in from there. Uh, and then year on year, we've got um, bolstering numbers coming through from Cotswold Wildlife Park where they're breeding young and bringing them down here just before they fledge. Uh, and then they'll be released 10 days after they arrive here and then they can fly and they'll be here for a little while and then we're hoping they'll migrate. And with them, we hope we'll migrate the young that have fledged from here as well. So we, this year we had 11 successful nests, mostly up in uh, the oak trees all around us here. Um, where they've made their own nests and they've successfully reared uh, 26 chicks uh, between them, which is amazing. You've got to hand it to NEP. They really are ambitious. They're not satisfied with just a little bit more nature. They're greedy for more. And so they should be. They've received beavers brought down from Scotland, which were released into a 240 hectare semi-enclosed pen. A pen because the English government is dragging their heels on allowing full-blown reintroductions and semi-enclosed because NEP wanted to trial less infrastructure, in the hope that they wouldn't escape if their new home was big enough. Well, they escaped. So then we had to reapply to Natural England um, because we realised the semi-enclosed pen wasn't going to work and that they would travel much larger distances to get out if they wanted to. Um, so on the back of that, we um, have now got a two hectare pen uh, around one of the little water lags, so the little streams that run through. 
and a different pair of beavers have been brought in, again from the take catchment. Um, and they have been there for uh, oh, about 18 months now and haven't escaped and that's been delightful. And they have created the most amazing um, habitat in there. It's just absolutely beautiful. And through the drought last year, like three or four months of no rain, I, you know, this was a completely parched landscape. And then you would go in the beaver pen and there was a bit of trickling water. There were dragonflies, there was little insects hatching off of the water surface. Um, you know, there's hobbies and kingfishers hunting. You know, it was just this oasis in such a dry landscape. And I was like, oh my God, this is a real wake-up call this is a no-brainer the beavers are so important and integral to our landscape we need, we need more of them it's almost 15 years since the first beaver reintroduction trial in scotland began almost 10 years since it was completed and four years since they were afforded protected species status and allowed to stay in the wild in scotland you would have hoped that following all that groundwork by their northerly neighbor england might want to skip ahead a few stages frustratingly they're still only being allowed entry to the English countryside behind bars. The government are moving so slowly on this, they're almost going backwards. I saw a tweet the other week that Sheffield City Council have been awarded almost £100,000 to gain a greater understanding of the benefits they have on our landscapes. But we know what beavers do. The conversation has to be much further along than this by now. They do the same as beavers in Scotland, and the same as beavers in Bavaria. In a climate and biodiversity emergency, we need more walk and less talk, especially when beavers bring so many benefits. But NEP aren't stalling. They're always looking forward and hoping to add more pieces back to the jigsaw of life. So we've got a couple of irons in fires at the moment and um, not only do they get us thinking about connectivity but also more scrubland which is what we were talking about early on how do we get people loving scrub so uh, those two species are redback shrike and the black-veined white butterfly uh, and they both um, you know it, it requires scrub as part of their life cycle part of the nesting or for um, their caterpillars or for their egg laying the charitable arm of nep is involved in a partnership organization called the weld to waves initiative with big plans on working towards a 160-kilometre corridor along the south coast. It has established forests, a couple of major river restoration projects, and is promoting the benefits of scrub and landscape recovery at scale. This has got everyone involved thinking big. And both the black-veined white and the red-backed shrike are highly mobile species, meaning connectivity is key. Shrikes are a fascinating group of birds. They generally like to nest in dense, thorny bushes, so there's that to consider. But they also like to cache their food by impaling their prey on spikes. They favour large invertebrates over 12mm long, but will also go for small birds, rodents and reptiles too. So if you're walking the wilds of Nep in a few years' time, and come across a miniature horocene with lots of dead things on thorns, fear not, this isn't the work of the devil. Redback shrikes are finally back and you've walked into their spiky larder. And also for um, the butterflies, they need uh, lots of nectar sources, uh, as well as the, the hawthorn and blackthorn they need. They need lots of nectar sources and a, 
apparently they have a particular taste for uh, pink and purple flowers. So again, it's just getting more, you know, nectar-rich habitats into our landscape as well, which is obviously going to be good for butterflies, good for in other insects as well. So although those are the flagship species for this kind of scrubland superheroes, calling it scrubland superheroes project, it's going to benefit a whole load of other species like the cuckoo, the turtle dove and the nightingale who require the same kind of habitat. When wilding came out did you see that make a big difference a um to to people's kind of wanting to know about nep and then equally people wanting to visit nep how did that how did that change things it's been quite an amazing time really um when I first started here, you know, rewilding, so I started in 2015, rewilding, you know, you know, people were talking about it, but really only people that were, in, you know, sort of had that kind of intrinsic interest in it. Um, and I would be out doing surveys and I just couldn't believe, you know, we got so many miles of footpaths and bridleways here. I just couldn't understand why I was the only person here. And I was out like, you know, doing some, I don't know, some transects or whatever. And I just couldn't understand, oh, I, you know, where was everyone? And obviously Izzy's book came out in 2018 and all of a sudden we we're like thinking, oh my word, there's this, been this huge wave of interest. Uh, people are talking about rewilding, like, you know, normal people are talking about rewilding and it's a thing. Um, and just to see this huge increase of interest and enthusiasm for it, but also the increase in numbers of people visiting, coming to see it for themselves, has just been the most amazing thing for us, really. Ecotourism is often touted as one of the prime benefits of rewilding. Get nature back and people will pay to come and see it. Now, I agree with this. But to be honest, I normally follow that up with a small dose of reality and say, but remember, it's not a silver bullet. Well, NEP have developed an enterprise of safaris, courses, glamping in a shop with a million pound turnover a year and a 20% profit margin. Whichever way you look at it, it's a fine turnaround from the days of spiralling farm debt just a few short decades ago. And I think it's really important for people to come and see it themselves because we are, you know, we're right in the southeast of England. We're in the middle of a very busy, busy county and we're in this amazing kind of wildland that you, you can feel like you're in the middle of nowhere. And yet we're here, we are quite near to some main roads and not far an hour out of London. So I think it's important that people can see that we can make these changes in busy areas, you know, it can be done. And also that the turnaround can be quite quick. We've seen nature flood back in, in a relatively short amount of time. We can make a difference and it's not all doom and gloom. We, you know, we, the power is still in our hands to make a difference. Okay, we are gonna lose species and we have lost some really rare species that need very specific habitats. You know, they're not necessarily gonna come back here, but what we are seeing come back it are some rare and protected species, but also just the, and the general abundance of life that we're missing in the rest of our landscape our wider countryside species we're seeing you know in good numbers here that these are all seeing declines elsewhere and actually all they need is a bit of messy scrub i mean it's you're sitting here it's not rocket science is it it's just some brown ones some black thorn some hawthorn we've got livestock so there's dung there's disturbance you know there's different habitat structure you know it's not difficult to recreate this on the back of pioneers like nep there's been real momentum building for rewilding in England. We may be coming to the party slightly late, but the results are exciting and are inspiring a new way to look at the land. Ambition is rife amongst landowners, NGOs and farmers too, but they need clear support from the government to transition into something truly special. Ambiguity does nobody any favours. 
Rewilding our land and seas brings huge benefits to our society. Ecosystem services, or natural capital, are the buzzwords that get thrown around. Healthier soils, filtered water, carbon sequestration, flood mitigation, drought alleviation, pollination, they're all vital to human survival. Yet we shouldn't downplay the sheer delight brought by a nightingale singing its heart out, or a purple emperor landing on your shoulder. I mean, this may not be for everyone. Penny did tell me they once had a complaint from a campsite guest that the birds were too loud and the moon was too bright. Still, for many, these kind of experiences can inspire something primal inside us and build a desire for more. Who would have thought just a few short years ago there'd be white-tailed eagles and storks battling it out in the skies above? If England, as a country, can learn to love the untidy, embrace the thorn and allow nature free reign, there's no reason we can't have a natural environment as rich as elsewhere in Europe. NEP is the proof of that. And all happening just 65 kilometres as the stork flies from the skyscrapers of central London. Now that's exciting. For me, the most inspiring element of all of this is the speed of success. It can be pretty daunting knowing we're in a race against biodiversity loss and climate chaos. But if we can just get an army of NEPs all sprinting in the opposite direction, we actually have a chance at beating this. Time to scrub up. Thanks for joining me for episode 7 of the Rewild podcast. It was great to hear from Charlie and Penny, and to finally see this awe-inspiring estate for myself. The team here are so passionate about getting the word out and people in, so I urge you to visit if you can. Join a safari or book a weekend of camping. Just be warned about those bright moons and loud birds. If you can't make it down here, Penny hosts an excellent podcast called the Nep Wildland Podcast where you can get to grips with all the detail and research going on here. Thanks as ever to Andrew O'Donnell of Beluga Lagoon for the beautiful music and to Gemma Shooter for the fantastic artwork. NEP Wildland is a member of the European Rewilding Network, a collection of groundbreaking initiatives across the continent brought together by Rewilding Europe as part of a broader rewilding movement. This is an organisation making rewilding happen through positive action on the ground. Do join us next month as we'll hopefully be back on the road and continuing our journey across the continent. Catch you next time.